Tons of cookies left over from the Young Life Banquet last night, and uh, Eric Sessler emailed me this morning to say, please feel free to take as many cookies as possible home with you this morning. Uh, so if you didn't get a cookie already, grab a cookie uh, or a box of cookies uh, after uh, the service today. Uh, my name is Sam Huggard. Uh, as was introduced earlier. Uh, I guess I am the almost pastor here now, so I'm grateful to be here with you all. Um, Wendy and I were so grateful of the uh, confirmation of God's call in last week's vote. Uh, it was very confirming uh, and clarifying for us. And uh, we're really excited to be part of this community and uh, look forward to how God is going to work in and through this church in the years to come. Uh, this coming uh, Friday and Saturday, uh, my work uh, with the district of the Free Church. Uh, we have our annual conference uh, this time of year, every year. So at this Friday and Saturday, uh, the New England District Association is gathering together in uh, Acton, Massachusetts at a church down there. And uh, we'll have the district side of the equation uh, vote at that meeting where we're looking to hire a couple uh, regional superintendents uh, to work alongside me uh, in the work of the district. So please be uh, praying for, uh, for that conference as well. I'm trusting that God will direct as clearly in that vote as he did in this vote. And so we're, we're looking forward to that. Um, this past fall, uh, we've been looking at the book of Ephesians. We've been uh, slowly walking through this letter that Paul wrote uh, to a local church in uh, the community of Ephesus. And uh, this is the title we've been using, uh, Seeing Reality, Christ, His Church, and the Cosmos. And uh, the key verse we've been using is actually uh, beautifully written up here on the chalkboard over here from Ephesians 1.18 uh, from Paul's prayer for the church where he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. That in this letter, Paul is, is looking uh, to open up the eyes of people, the eyes of the heart, the eyes of the soul, that we could see what is true, see what is real. I mean, even as followers of Christ who have had our eyes opened to Jesus, we still need an ongoing work of sight, of God helping us to see everything in life through the lens of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're uh, looking to do in this series. Um, my prayer is that this uh, idea of the eyes of our heart being enlightened would be expanded today as we look at our text this morning. Uh, it's Ephesians 3 verses one through 13. And uh, as I read through this text today, uh, look and listen for the word mystery. Because that word mystery is key to this idea of our eyes being opened, all right? So Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, look and listen for the word mystery. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, uh, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was, has, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given 
to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in, the, uh, in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Will you join me in prayer? God, I do pray uh, that you would open our eyes this morning uh, to see fully, to see rightly, to see clearly. And God, I thank you that you have given us uh, your word to guide us into truth. And even more than that, you've given us your spirit, uh, Lord, to illuminate your word that we could know deep down uh, who you are and how you have rescued us in your death, in your resurrection, ascension. And God, we ask this morning uh, that you would use uh, this time of teaching uh, to reveal to us what is true, and then to conform our lives according to what is true. So please accomplish your, your purposes uh, here and now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this section, uh, Paul begins a prayer, but it, he almost kind of gets distracted. Uh, in verse one, we see him begin to pray. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, and, and then he pauses. He picks it back up in verse 14. So if you look at verse 14, you'll see that he picks up where he left off. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. And he goes on to pray. This is a similar prayer to the one he prayed in chapter one. So Paul kind of writes truth, and then he prays based on the truth. It's a wonderful uh, insight into this gospel kind of ministry, saying what is true, but it's not just enough to say the truth. We're praying to the one who can bring that truth to light in our lives. And so Paul is praying for the Ephesians. But, but I, I'm not sure if Paul is like having a, a, a squirrel kind of moment where he's intending to pray and then kind of remembers, oh yeah, I had more to say. Uh, but whatever it is, he all of a sudden shifts and, and goes deeper into this idea of explaining further the mystery of Christ. And so that's what I want to kind of spend our time on this morning, is really leaning into understanding the mystery of Christ. I mean, four times in these verses, Paul uses that phrase. Uh, Ephesians 3.3, 3, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Verse four, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse six, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and then verses eight and nine, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. What I hope to see today is how a deep understanding of the mystery of Christ transforms us. A deep understanding of this mystery, uh, it doesn't leave us static. Uh, we, are, we are changed as we grasp this mystery. It changed Paul's life radically, and it has changed the lives of countless followers of Christ throughout the ages as they have grasped the mystery of Christ. And Paul uses this word a lot. I mean, seven times in this letter, he uses the word mystery. Fifteen times in his other letters, uh, and so it's a word we should become familiar with, we should understand. 
And it is a little different in the scriptures uh, compared to how we use the word. So let's just start here with a little word association, all right? When I say the word mystery, what is the first word or thought or picture that comes to your mind, all right? Well, I didn't hear it, what is it? Scooby-Doo, Scooby yeah, of course, Scooby-Doo, yeah. Nancy Drew, yeah, Scooby-Doo, Nancy Drew, okay, we had a rhyme going, okay. Well, what else? Murder, yes, yes, okay. All of these kind of having the element of something that's kind of like unknown, well, Scooby-Doo, I, I, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> In our modern usage, mystery means something that is unknown or can't be known. So it's, if it's a difficult crime to solve, it's a mystery until some amazing detective can crack the case. Um, or, or let's say you're working on a difficult problem. Maybe you're a high school student and you're, you're in a, a, a calculus class and you can't figure out the problem. You say, oh, it's a mystery to me, right? If you can't understand something, it's a mystery. Well, that's not the way uh, the word is used in the scriptures. So let's dig into this a little bit here. See, because the word translated mystery in our English Bibles is the Greek word mysterion. Not to be confused uh, with the Marvel supervillain, Mysterio, all right? Very different, Mysterio, Mysterion. Now, during the COVID lockdown, uh, our three kids were home, and uh, we spent a lot of time working our way through the Marvel uh, series in chronological order, all right? We wanted to understand it. And so in chronological order, we watched through the Marvel series. And uh, one of my favorite of the series, we can debate about this later, but was uh, Spider-Man Far From Home. And in this uh, movie, you had the supervillain Mysterio, who the great secret was, actually had no superpowers. Everything he did was by special effects and illusion. And so he's operating on our usage of the word mystery. He wanted no one to know his secret. Because if you realize that he was just a fake, he could be defeated. So Mysterio operated by this mystery principle that we have. But in the scriptures, the word mysterion uh, means something different. Uh, mysterion doesn't mean something that can't be understood or remains unknown. Rather, it refers to something that was previously hidden, but which has now been revealed by God. Uh, listen to what the NIV application commentary has to say about this word. It says, this term does not refer to something unknown. Rather, in a Semitic context, it refers to what is known only because God revealed it. So a mystery is something we would not know, could not know, apart from God. That we couldn't know it, but God has made it known. So we've been saying in the book of Ephesians so far that Ephesians is like a set of glasses. That it, it helps us to see clearly what is true. Kind of like our eyesight is a little bit fuzzy, so we need some corrective lenses to see. But in this section, Paul's saying the problem's worse than you think. You don't just need glasses because your sight's a little fuzzy. You need like x-ray equipment or a telescope or a microscope to see something that you could never see with your natural eyes alone. A, a mystery is something that God makes known to us that in our human understanding is impossible for us to see. So Paul is revealing to us here the mystery of Christ. And this mystery transforms. So on one sense, this word mystery means that God is revealing what we wouldn't see otherwise. But there's another reason Paul uses the word mystery. 
it's not just that he's saying, uh, I've now learned some doctrinal truths that I wanna pass on to you. Yawn. No, no, no. He's saying, I'm captivated by this. It's grabbed my whole life. Um, and so the word mystery has with it the idea of wonder, of, of being captivated. It has changed everything about Paul's life, and it can do for us as well. So mystery, something that God has revealed to us that we couldn't see otherwise, and something that is so beautiful that it captivates us. And I hope this morning uh, to unpack some of that. So we're gonna consider three facets this morning of the mystery of Christ and how it transforms a life. Three facets. We'll look at the mystery of Christ for us, the mystery of Christ in us, and the mystery of Christ through us. Uh-oh, am, am I cutting out a little bit? I'll yell louder if I do, all right? So let's dig in first to the mystery of Christ for us. Ephesians 3, 7 to 9, uh, Paul says this, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power, to me, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. You know, Paul refers to himself here as the least of all the saints. The least of all the saints. He's saying, I'm the last person you would expect to be sharing this message. I'm the last person you would expect God to call uh, to have this responsibility. I'm like the worst of Christians, he's saying. And he's saying that because he previously persecuted the church. That it was his uh, vision to put an end to the Christian movement. Now this has been a striking change in Paul's life. That before he thought incredibly highly of himself and his purposes. Uh, we actually read this verse last week, Philippians 3, 5 to 8. You know, Paul says about himself, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a, a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. You know, Paul's saying here, um, I thought I was the best, or at least pretty good, at my aim in life. I mean, Paul was up and to the right on his tra life trajectory. Uh, he was educated under some of the most uh, respected scholars of the day. Um, he was intellectually robust in his education and very proficient in his work. Um, he was very zealous in what he did. And in terms of uh, his adherence, to the law, uh, he was unparalleled in his ability to, to live the life that he thought was correct. Paul is saying, I thought I was a virtuous person. I thought I was on the right side of history and doing God a favor with my work. But something changed. In that same passage, Philippians 3, he goes on in verses seven to eight and he says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ. 
What happened to bring about this level of change in how Paul viewed himself and in terms of how Paul viewed Christ? What did Paul see that he didn't see prior? Well, some of you probably are familiar with Paul's story where Paul met Jesus. He had an encounter with Jesus on the road to the city of Damascus. And he was traveling there to put a stop to the Christian movement in that city. Paul thought he saw rightly. He thought he was the good guy and the followers of Jesus were the bad guys. But as he journeyed to the city of Damascus, Jesus appeared to him in a blinding light. And Jesus spoke to him saying, why are you persecuting me? And at that moment, Paul's physical eyes became temporarily blinded and the eyes of his heart became opened. In this event, the mystery of Christ for him began to be revealed. He saw Jesus for who he really is in that moment. He saw that Jesus was not just a, 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 a teacher, a rabbi who had some crazy followers, uh, but Jesus was himself the Lord, God in flesh. And in that moment, Paul saw himself for who he was. Uh, he saw that he was not a virtuous man, but a sinner. He saw that he was working against God and against his purposes. And then in that moment, he saw grace. He saw that though he was working against Jesus, Jesus had not stopped loving him. And Jesus was pursuing him. And when Paul realized that Jesus had died for him, uh, it grabbed hold of his heart. And Paul, uh, Paul later wrote in Romans 5, verse 8, that God demonstrated his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This Christ for us mystery has great power to grab hold of a heart and to humble a person. Paul thought he was this wonderful, virtuous man, and in that moment, he was humbled when he realized that Christ had died for him. That story is not unique to Paul. If you're a follower of Jesus in some form, that's your story too. That when we grasp hold of the mystery of Christ for us, it humbles us. I want to share with you today a brief modern day testimony of someone having their eyes open to Christ in a surprising way. Uh, I want to share with you a testimony of Rosaria Butterfield, uh, who is a former professor at Syracuse University. She's uh, now an author and a speaker. Her books include uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key and The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, which I love that, that title, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Uh, listen to her story of how she came to understand the mystery of Christ for her and how that humbled her and changed her life. Well, if anybody is unfamiliar with you and your story, can you acquaint us just a, just a quick little version of your story? How did you come to know Christ? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I came to know Christ in many ways through the hospitality ministry and then the faithful preaching of a neighbor um, who was also a pastor. I was a almost tenured, you know how tenure is, it takes forever. So I've got, you know, all my ducks were in a row. So I was an almost tenured professor um, in, in English and, um, and uh, queer theory, which was a subset of critical theory. And I had a joint appointment in the women's studies program. And um, I started working on a book that I, really, I was just trying to figure out why, why, um, why Bible-believing Christians hated people like me. And that would have mm. been out lesbian feminists. I was just trying to understand it from a tribal perspective. Like why, 
you know, why can't we find some ground in the middle or something like that? Um, and I realized that as an English professor, I couldn't just get away with um, with trying to talk to people and get their you know feedback. But I had to read the Bible, and I also realized that I don't know anything about the Bible. And um, just providentially, I had written an article in the local newspaper. Um, it was called. They titled it "Promise Keepers' Message is a Danger to Democracy." So isn't, isn't nice. it interesting? That was 1996 or something. So uh, this whole like fear of Christian nationalism has been, you know, spinning for many, many decades. But mm. anyway, I got a lot of feedback from that article, um, hate mail, fan mail. They all feel the same when it's on those edges. And then one from Ken Smith, who was the then pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. And over the course of two years, probably 500 meals at his house and, um, you know, reading through the Bible seven times, um, I came to realize that Jesus was true. Mm. And this was a big deal um, because I really cared about truth. I had a stick on my death desk that said I'd rather be um, wrong on an important point than right on a trivial one. And so I was open, you know, I mean, I'm a truth seeker. And of course, at that time, I was in a, a committed lesbian relationship. I was leading, uh, directing dissertations in queer theory. I was leading uh, student groups in um, LGBTQ causes. And it was, a, dare I say it, a most inconvenient time uh, <laughs> to be converted. Um, but converted, I was. And so I couldn't just... Um, I couldn't do what I had started out hoping to do, which was find some peace in the middle, because the gospel isn't about finding middle ground. You know, the gospel isn't the Iowa caucus. It's die to yourself and follow Jesus. And um, and so actually things got harder before they got easier. But for me, it was just it was a real um, it was a watershed, you know, to realize uh you know, I thought I was on the side of kindness and, um, I don't know, diversity, compassion, um, and to realize that actually it was it was Jesus I was persecuting the whole time was pretty shocking. And then and then you know to take it a step further, not just you know this kind of historical figure named Jesus, but my Jesus, my my prophet, my priest, my king, my husband, my friend. Um, that was just my undoing. Um, and so, you know, I did not actually lose my job because I was tenured, which is an interesting story unto itself. Um, <laughs> but I do, I did say in secret thoughts that I lost everything but the dog. And that was true uh, because I had to, because I had to. Wow. This mystery of Christ for us humbles us. Now you saw there in her testimony how at one point she was very convinced about the direction of life that she thought was good and right, but then had this revelation through the scriptures about who God is and what he wanted for her life. And friends, that's the case for all followers of Jesus. All of us have to come to an understanding of how we uniquely have been working against God and his purposes. Because not one of us starts off in life working with God and his purposes. And this is different for all of us. We all find different ways in life to work against God and his purposes, but that's all our story. 
And when we realize that Jesus, even as we are working against him, has loved us and has died for us, it humbles us. And in that place of security, of knowing that we are loved even in our sin, we have the ability to begin to do some self-examination and to consider, how is God calling me to yield my life to him, all my life to him? The gospel for us, the mystery of Christ for us, humbles us. And we can know that we are grasping this mystery by the measure of our humility. That's like the gas gauge on the dashboard of our faith life. The more humility that we are recognizing in our life, the greater grasp we have on the mystery of Christ for us. Now this by itself, this mystery by itself, is amazing. But that's not all there is, even close. Paul goes on and says not only is Christ for us, is the mystery of Christ for us, but it's the mystery of Christ in us. And I'm gonna go a little faster through this section because we did a lot on this last week, all right? Uh, But the bulk of this passage here focuses on this aspect of the mystery, that Christ in us, that Christ has not only died for us, but he has ascended to heaven and sent his spirit to take up residence in our lives. Not just in Jewish lives or a certain other kind of nationality, but in Jews and Gentiles alike. Same spirit in all people have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And Christ in us brings about a unity that we would never have otherwise. Christ in us unifies us. He says in Ephesians 3, 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. This is expressed even more clearly in his letter to the Colossians. In Colossians 1, 26 through 27, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we struggle to grasp just how radical this was. The fact that Jews and Gentiles have been brought together into the same community. We looked last week at the temple structure, how divided it was. Jews on the outside corridor, Gentiles on the outside, Jews brought in. And now God's spirit has indwelt the life of anybody who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. The mystery of Christ in us has amazing power to unify us. And I don't know about you, but I think we need that as much today as they did back then. We have a tendency to identify with those who are like us. And Christ has called us to something different. That in the church, there is a diversity of people that are being called together, and it is Christ and his spirit in us that produces the unity. There's a new identity, and there's a new power. That Christ in us has the power to unify us. Now, if you want to understand more of that, I encourage you to listen to last week's sermon. But for the sake of time, I'm moving on to the last mystery, which is the mystery of Christ through us. Paul has come to realize that in his work, he wasn't just doing it for Jesus, but Jesus was working through him. That as Paul was working, Jesus was working through his life to others. Uh, In Ephesians uh, 3, verses 2 and 7, He says this, uh, the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. 
Great phrase. He says, I'm a steward. I don't own this, but God has entrusted this, this grace to me. So Paul doesn't see grace just as something for him to consume, but grace has been given to him to disperse to others. And in particular, the grace that he's been given is this mystery, this message that, that God is for Jews and Gentiles alike and is making us one people together of this gospel, of this good news, this message. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. So Paul understood that, that God had rescued him by grace and by grace had given him unique gifts and experiences and he was, wanted to use those to help others come to understand the mystery of Christ. God wanted to work through Paul. And that simple realization transformed his life. In particular, that realization transformed how he viewed suffering. Look with me at verse one of this chapter. Paul writes, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, this is not just a metaphor. Paul was an actual... Uh, Paul was writing this letter. I think it is uh, fading out a little bit? Okay, I'll keep wiggling it. Uh, Paul is writing this letter from a jail cell. Um, he had been arrested and was in a Roman prison. And he had been arrested because of the Jewish religious leaders who were angry about his message. And his message was that in Jesus, the Messiah had come and Gentiles were welcomed into the family. And that aspect of the message really angered the Jewish religious leaders. Now, notice what Paul didn't write, but what he could have written. He didn't write, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Romans because of the Jewish religious leaders. I mean, that's true. He was in a Roman jail because the Jewish religious leaders got angry with him. But that's not how he identified himself. That's not the story he lived by. Because of the mystery of Christ working through him, he didn't see himself as a prisoner of Rome, stuck in jail because of the unjust treatment of the Jewish religious leaders. He viewed himself as a person who had become captured and captivated by Jesus Christ. And that Jesus had sent him into this situation so that he could help Gentiles come to know Jesus and they could have their lives transformed by him. And that's a radical shift in his, his suffering, his circumstances. Uh, Paul endured a ton of suffering in his ministry. He endured unjust imprisonment, beatings, a shipwreck. His question in all of this was, how can God use this situation so that the mystery of Christ can be made known to others? Now, when we read this, um, danger of thinking, good for Paul. You know, Paul's this spiritual superhero that we read about in the Bible. Glad he was able to live that amazing kind of way in the face of suffering. But us ordinary Christians in you know, 2022, uh, that's not really for us. And to think that way is to miss the power of this passage. This is exactly for us. This view during suffering can transform us. That we are to see ourselves as stewards of the mystery of God's grace on behalf of others. 
Into any situation we are sent, we are stewards of the mystery of grace on behalf of others. Well, let me play this out a little bit for you. Let's say, hypothetically, that some of you in the room are parents, all right? And that may occasionally involve a tad bit of suffering. You can't parent well if you don't embrace suffering at all. Because parenting is to say, I'm not going to live life on my terms, to do what I want to do when I want to do it. That is, if you're a good parent. <laughs> Instead, you are arranging your life for the benefit of another who is dependent upon you. Now, that's a different kind of suffering than what Paul endured, but it is. It is a type of suffering. And in this view, you could be tempted to think, uh, I'm kind of like a prisoner in this, this, this situation here. I am held captive by these wonderful people I call my children. But the truth is, if you've come to follow Jesus Christ, then truly you are a prisoner of Jesus in a good way. Your life has been captured by Jesus. And he has control on your life and has put you in this situation so that you can steward the mystery of God's grace on behalf of your children. And so anytime you're running into a hardship with your children, there's an opportunity for Christ to be shown through your life. I am a steward of the mystery of God's grace for the benefit of my children. That will change your outlook. It may not make everything easy, but it does change your outlook in the midst of suffering. Or let's say as you go to the workplace, you run into some suffering, because you know what, that tends to happen. Maybe someone starts speaking uh, poorly about you in the workplace, or someone you know, just is uh, taking advantage of you, passing all the work off to you. Uh, whatever it is, we often face suffering in the workplace. And over time, it can be tempting to view your job as your prison cell. I have to go there all the time. I wish I wasn't there. And that can become a really tough way to live. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are not a prisoner of your employer or that company. You're a prisoner of Jesus Christ. You become captured by him, captivated by him. You are a steward of the mystery of grace for the benefit of your coworkers. And how you go about your work in the face of suffering has great opportunity to showcase the gospel. You're a steward of the mystery of grace. Or students that are in the room, as you go to your school, you might interact with others uh, who don't think kindly of your Christian faith. Uh, they may even make fun of you for it. And you might be tempted to think, I have to go to this school, I really don't want to. It might be your prison. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are a steward of the mystery of grace for the benefit of your classmates. There's a whole different uh, view, a different lens, and a different power when we embrace this identity. We are stewards of the mystery of grace for the benefit of others. The evil one does not want us to look at the world this way. Instead, we're tempted to look at the world through our own personal self-actualization and happiness. But when we are captivated by the mystery of Christ, we're given a new way to live and a new way to see. So the very best thing that we can do as followers of Christ is to become more and more captivated by the mystery of Christ for us, the mystery of Christ in us, and the mystery of Christ through us. And there is always more that we can be captivated by. From here throughout eternity, we'll be growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this mystery gets more and more wonderful 
as we grasp it. I encourage you this week even to use this simple structure of Christ for us, Christ in us, and Christ through us to guide how you pray this week. God, help me to understand more deeply. Give me in my place. And God, I pray that would humble me. God, I pray that you'll be to understand how you are in me and in my brothers and sisters and how that unifies us. God, where there's difference, bring us together around Christ. And God, I know you want to work through me in my family, in my workplace, in my school. God, I pray you'd strengthen me with that identity. It's a great way to work, our, work your morning through in prayer. Christ for us, Christ in us, and Christ through us. As the worship team comes forward, I encourage you to stand with me now. We're going to close in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much uh, for what we read in your word here. Lord, that uh, you have made us stewards of the mystery of God's grace. And uh, God, this mystery, uh, it is amazing. Uh, we cannot fully grasp it. We read that uh, it is uh, unsearchable that we can't know it fully, but yet we can know it in Christ Jesus to a degree. So God, help us to know this week how much you are for us. Help us, Lord, to know your presence with us. And God, may we be empowered by your spirit working through us. Lord, uh, to you be all praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.